Hi, everyone. It's producer Jake. There's no news roundup this week since Derek needs to regain his sanity, so we instead have a special episode we recorded today about the Chilean constitutional plebiscite, which is perfect because the highest profile monarch in the world absolutely did not die since we planned this. In any case, we usually reserve these for paid subscribers, so if you want special episodes on current events, in addition to a bonus interview and a mini-episode, head to our substack at AmericanPrestigePod.com and subscribe. We really appreciate the support. Thanks. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Danny Bessner, who is still laid up with back troubles. So best wishes to him. Uh, as you all may know, you, we are and not to all my fans. You know, it's yes. really, it's, it's they who keep me going. And uh, I just want to thank all you people out there. And I'm going to really mute your microphone it. in a second. Okay. Uh, <laughs> many of you, uh, uh, if you uh, listen to our weekly news roundups, may notice that we are not doing one this week. That's because I took the week off from my newsletter. And no newsletter means no news roundup here for the podcast. But in lieu of that. So, so have, then you get, yeah, you get this special news. Yes, you get you special news. You can see what news, you're missing if depth. you don't subscribe. Yeah, on this one is what of we this do week's, for subscribers. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Uh, one of uh, this week's major events, uh, the Chilean plebiscite, constitutional plebiscite or referendum uh, on Sunday, uh, which saw the proposed new constitution defeated uh, by a fairly hefty margin. Uh, joining us to discuss that vote and the background and put it in some context, we are very lucky to be joined by Rene Rojas of SUNY Binghamton or Binghamton University, if you prefer. Uh, he is an uh, assistant professor in the Department of Human Development. He is also on the editorial board of Catalyst, uh, Jacobin's peer-reviewed journal. He has been covering this process for Jacobin, uh, some, some excellent coverage you should check out uh, if you have not been doing that. Rene, uh, thank you very much for coming on the program and, and helping us to uh, understand what's going on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure, even under these demoralizing circumstances. Uh, so let's start with some basic background. And I don't want to get, we're, we're, we want to just hit sort of the uh, what people need to know to contextualize the the vote. So we don't want to get too bogged down in the, the history. But let's talk about Chile's current constitution, the one that people voted uh, to change, to, to you know, uh, scrap it and adopt a new one. Um, what, what exactly is in that constitution and what it kind of sort of are sort of its main characteristics that people uh, have found objectionable, and uh, you know we can get into the protests. I don't know that's maybe a separate question, uh, the twenty nineteen protests, but just kind of give people a sense of what people voted to replace and why. Yeah, well, what people voted to replace was the reigning constitution, um, which was pretty much imposed under dictatorship in nineteen eighty under the uh, military regime of Augusto Pinochet, and that constitution has remained in place even after the transition to democracy in the late 80s, early 90s. So what we've had in Chile for, you know, since 1990 is over 20 years of democratic regime, um, but, right, in many ways uh, following the a very neoliberal constitution that was adopted under authoritarian circumstances. And what the constitution does is enshrine 
right? The liberalization and commodification of pretty much all areas of life. It um, does not allow for, um, a, you know, a significant role of the state in providing basic public goods. And in fact, it does the opposite. It dictates that the market um, and, and, and market transaction, market competition um, is responsible for distributing um, basic goods and services in Chile. So let's talk then, I mean, we're fast forwarding over a lot, but but let's talk about the 2019 protests, which seem to have kicked off this push to, you know, first hold a referendum on whether people wanted to, to adopt a new constitution, which passed overwhelmingly uh, in 2020. Uh, and then, you know, sort of uh, even led to the, the election in 2021 of, of Gabriel Boric. But let's let's start with the protests in, in 2019, which were in, in the in immediate cause was, uh, you know, I believe transportation fairs, mass transit fairs in Santiago. But there were much deeper kind of roots here that I think are, are connected to the uh, the nature of the Constitution. Can you talk a little bit about what went on there? Yeah, you're right. This is kind of uh, triggered by uh, a hike in um, subway fares, right? But it was minimal. It was really something that people could could absorb. But uh, they occurred at a point when uh, growing layers of ordinary working Chileans um, had just had had it. And what were they fed up with? Well, they were, they were fed up with the growing inequality that um, has um, really deepened under neoliberalism in Chile, but also just, you know, growing economic insecurity and social insecurity for huge chunks of uh, the working population. And so it was a spontaneous rebellion and really a social explosion that nobody saw coming. Um, and it was fueled by these grievances, by the fact that workers um, don't have basic rights and protections, right, vis-a-vis -vis their employers, that they can't bargain collectively in good faith, that uh, the privatized pension system um, pretty much sentences most elderly people um, to um, uh, retirements of, you know, undignified and retirements in, in, in misery, um, that the healthcare system is an apartheid healthcare system. You know, if you depend on um, public hospitals, you, you, you know, chances are that you'll get terrible service if you even get service, then you probably end up sicker um, when you leave the hospital than you were when you came in. And a series of, of other um, grievances related to, as I said, basic economic insecurity and, and lack of social rights and protection. Now, I think it's worth uh, noting that although the, the explosion known as the estallido in Chile in October um, of 2019 was spontaneous, no one called for it, no one organized it. I mean, it, it starts by uh, students, right, um, kind of um, protesting in individual subway stations. Uh, and then it just escalates and no, it's in this uncontainable way. No one can stop it, right? And so in that sense, it was, it was spontaneous. But we should note that it had been preceded by um, almost a 10-year cycle of, of growing mass protest. Um, where I think that one of the, the defining opening moments was the 2011-2012 student rebellion, um, which was the first really mass movement in Chile under democracy 
post-dictatorship democracy um, that started to have broader influence. And from there, other mass movements, uh, pensioners, um, feminist movement, um, local kind of what, what are called in Chile territorial movements, right, really started to pop off one, one by one. And so leading up to the 2019 explosion, as I said, there had already been this growing upsurge in mobilization. Renee, I have a question about that. I, I imagine it's linked to the global recession of 08 and 09. And if so, how did that affect Chile that you get this explosion from 2012 to 2019? The, the the recession the global recession yes or like what what happens in Chile, uh, Chile's political economy yeah I, you know I'm not sure if there's much of a, a direct influence there um, a lot of people have attributed the 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 explosion to or have 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 labeled it one more of these kind of anti austerity um, rebellions that occurred throughout the region in Ecuador and Colombia and across the globe, really, around the same time. I'm not quite sure that's, it's, you know, there were similar dynamics um, promoting the, the social explosion in, in, in Chile. I think it had to do more with um, a couple of things. One was the kind of, maybe you might call it, to use fancy language, the political opportunity structure kind of at the time, right? Um, there was a new right-wing government who had just come power. It was Sebastián Piñera's second term. There's no consecutive um, presidency or presidential terms, right? But he, he had been president previously and he comes back. And this is kind of on the backs, on the back end of a series of, um, you know, frustrating attempts at reform under his predecessor, you know, the center-left Michel Bachelet from, of the Socialist Party, right? So I think when there's a uh, you know, change of government, the right comes into power, it kind of unleashes a lot of pent up um, energy and frustration, right? That coupled with the fact that there had been, you know, a, a rise in uh, mobilization of, of all types of moves, and particularly, you know, labor had been revived, the labor movement had, had revived in significant ways, meant that really all it took was a catalyzing moment, you know, a, a, a spark that that would light a broader fire that, that's the way i would characterize it i wonder if we could talk a little bit more about uh, some of the grievances the the inequality the extent of the inequality and and sort of communities that were um, most affected or that have been most affected under the pinochet era constitution if we're talking about young people we're talking about workers um, indigenous communities, uh, you know, I'd be interested in sort of, um, you know, if you could talk a little bit about that aspect of, of you know, what people were, were kind of brushing up against or, or uh, protesting against. Yeah. And it's quite multifaceted, right? I think the root um, problem is, is the same, right? Commodification, deregulation of, of labor, um, commodification of social provision, I should say, uh, just basic absence of, of, of fundamental guarantees that, that people count on in most civilized societies. Um, but the, you know, mobilizations, the protest movements that, e that emerged had taken place 
right? Or, or had occurred, I should say, along these particular axes, right? So one is uh, pertains to youth and education. Now, there's no doubt about that. There are two things there. Um, the Chilean educational system is basically an apartheid system, right? Um, it is it's so segmented um, because of the effects of decentralization of local, um, uh, fi you know, financing, funding of, of education, of, of public schools, um, and, you know, privatization on, on, on the other hand, uh, that, you know, you had increasing layers of students either not being able to get it you know, any kind of a decent education or finishing high school, going to college, right? Um, having to pay for that or acquire, you know, ex extensive debt to do so, and then not having significant prospects afterward, right? Um, that's part of it. Another part of it, I think, is, and this is, in my view, the folks who were hit the hardest and really the people who came out in October and November of 2019 and confronted the police and burned down the megastores, the Walmarts, you know, who, who even when they were shot at, you know, were not intimidated. There was, there was just so much fury there. And I'm talking here about the most marginalized um, segments of the working class who, uh, you know, scraped by barely surviving the informal economy. Um, even though Chile has been, you know, is touted as a neoliberal miracle. And in fact, you know, it does have a s relatively smaller um, informal sector compared to other Latin American countries. I mean, there are societies where 80, 90% of the people survive in the informal sector. In Chile, it's about 40%, right? But, you know, it's 40% who just doesn't have its basic needs guaranteed, right? And in a... Uh, context of just uh, really grotesque inequalities, right? When you see that as, no matter how hard you work or how hard you try to work, you just can't make ends meet and you have no protections, no security at your job, right? You don't have any kind of health insurance for, you know, forget saving for pensions, nothing. Whereas you see the ruling class and the political class, you know, just making a killing. Um, those people were particularly um, frustrated and experienced the most uh, furious discontent of all, I would say. And they were really the ones who came out, right? Um, I think you have to add to that another important um, sector, which are, are, are the elderly. I mean, because of the privatized pension system in Chile, they're called IFP, the, um, you know, private, what is it called? The, anyway, I won't try to translate it now. Um, the, these pension funds, right? that are administered by, by large financial interests. Um, basically, if you are not able to work and contribute much, your employer is not contributing anything, and you're not saving much. So by the time the elderly reach retirement age in Chile, over half of them um, are going to make, uh, earn pensions that are far below the minimum wage, right? And, and there's a large percentage that is not able to save anything, right? Um, so I think those were some of the, the main issues involved. You mentioned the uh, Mapuche struggle, the indigenous uh, population, particularly in the south of Chile. Um, the Mapuche have also um, experienced a, an upsurge um, in mobilization and protest, and the movement is becoming increasingly uh, militant, right? 
And there the main grievance is um, the encroachment on, you know, a dwindling land base to begin with, because under the dictatorship in particular, a lot of these communities um, through not so legal means often lost a lot of their territory, right? And on top of that, now these large, uh, particularly timber uh, multinationals, you know, are taking over their land, um, their forest or planting, you know, new forests. And so there the struggle is to protect and preserve um, basic land holdings um but anyway it's an important this the the indigenous question the Mapuche question uh ended up playing a very important role in the plebiscite and in fact um largely worked against approval um of uh, of the draft of the charters draft we can talk about that if you want in a bit why why don't we talk about the the initial plebiscite i want to sort of lay the groundwork here and talk about the 2020 plebiscite um and also the the 2021 general election but but let's start with the plebiscite and what was that campaign like the the the, there was a two-part plebiscite one do you want to change the constitution and prove one by uh you know huge majority um and then the second question was would you you know do you want congress to rewrite the constitution or do you want a separate constitutional convention the constitutional convention won by a by a substantial majority what were the arguments um in favor not just of of you know, writing a new constitution, but of doing it uh, in the way that it wound up being being handled. Yeah. If you don't mind, l- let me, I know we don't want to spend too much time on this, but l- let me backtrack a little, because there's an important point to make about the deal that allowed the constitution, I mean, the, the plebiscite to, to take place. Um, when folks are still out on, this, on the street and the Benita government could just, he couldn't do anything. He sent the militarized police, he sent soldiers, they're shooting at people. People aren't leaving. They're still burning down stores. And this is when he cries uncle and says, fine, let's make a deal. And at that point, Boric, the current president who was in Congress, played a key role in brokering a deal. uh, 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 You know, he he helps negotiate this concession, which is, okay, the way out of this situation, of this rebellion that's raging in the street and the way to try to channel the discontent towards some kind of reform process is through a constituent overhaul, uh, a, a constitutional overhaul. At the time, sectors on the left were very critical, um, you know, accusing him of selling out the movement on the street, of uh, saving Piñera's ass. Can I can I say that song? Okay. Um, and a number of other things. Um, you know, whereby people voiced, as I said, their, their disapproval. I think it was absolutely the right call. I don't see what other uh, way out of, right, um, the re- what would have been another way out of the rebellion, another productive avenue out of, of the rebellion. Perhaps the rebellion would have continued and brought down the government, but then what? Then the political class would have taken over and struck a deal anyway. Right. Chances are, though, that the um, movement would have eventually on the street, on the ground, exhausted itself as mass mobilizations do. And it's unclear what would have happened. So in my view, I first just want to point out that I I thought Boric and some of his comrades who later joined him in in his new government, his new cabinet, um, played, you know, um, a good role there. And they made the the right moves um, to get Pineda and the rest of the political class to agree on on 
this concession. Um, moving on to your question. Sorry, sorry, I wanted to add that parenthetically. Um, there, the fact of the matter was you didn't need to campaign much, right? You didn't have to make too many arguments in favor. At that point, there had been a generalized um, kind of acceptance among um, vaguely um, politicized people, even, right? Gen among the gen general population that the only way to fix Chile's problems of inequality, of insecurity, of um, lack of political um, representativity was to get rid of the old constitution, right? So uh, again, I don't think it took much campaigning. The right certainly campaigned. It used all kinds of uh, propaganda and scare tactics. One of the main ones was to say, if we go, if we change, we get rid of the old constitution, which has provided so much order, which has allowed for so much growth, we'll end up like Venezuela. Look at Venezuela. Look at the chaos. Look at the dysfunction of the uh, of governing institutions. Look at the poverty. Look at the mass emigration. Chile will become Chilezuela was what, what they were saying, you know, and um, uh, in the corporate media and so, and social media, right? None of it worked. The um, basic consensus that we needed a new constitution ran so deep among you know ordinary people that the left didn't have to campaign much at all, right? And so they voted 78 in favor of a new constitution and uh, 22 against. There were only three towns or townships, comunas as they're called in Chile, that voted against, and they became the infamous comunas or townships del rechazo, of rejection. And they're the three wealthiest um, uh, you know, townships in, in the Santiago region. They're the only ones and of course, that the, the 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 their isolation in terms of the the you know in ter terms of public opinion at the time underscored just how wide and deep the consensus ran. Then, when asked who should write the new constitution, there was no way in hell they were going to say, "Oh yeah, let's let these same assholes who have ruined things for us write the constitution." It went without saying that people wanted. Uh, new faces, new voices, new representatives. And it won by, I think it did actually a little better, um, but pretty much by the same margin. Now, there was intense fervor at the time, somewhat mitigated and moderated by the COVID pandemic, which um, occurred in the ensuing months, right? But that intense um, feeling and sympathy for change was still in the air. And it won um, handily in, in the opening plebiscite, the entry plebiscite, and it also did really well in the elections for representatives themselves. That was, but that was a double-edged sword in terms of who ended up getting elected to the assembly, which perhaps we can talk about. Yeah, why don't we talk about that? And and I mean, if you if you want to broaden it even to talk about the outcome of the general election, which you know, still strikes me as as um, showing an appetite for change. I mean, this sort of pattern that we've seen in other elections uh, of late uh, mm -hmm. in other parts of the world where there's this sort of dying center and people are trying, you know, people want to 
uh, break out of that center left, center right um, kind of trap. And so you wind up with candidates who are um, on the extremes running, you know, getting through the the sort of preliminaries or, you know, rising to the top of a presidential field. But there was also a congressional election that I, I'm far less uh, yeah. versed in. So yeah, why don't we, I mean, yeah, start, talk about yeah. the, the election to the convention and what it said about the direction things were going and also, you know, what, what the general election said about what Chilean people are, were, were actually, you know, looking for here. Sure. Sure. Um, and it, it, let's, let's start with the convention elections because the, what happened in the convention ended up influencing the presidential elections in, in a really important way. So, um, it's not just that chronologically it came first. Um, there, there's a, a direct analytical thread there as well. Um, so, you know, at this moment of kind of, um, positive, you know, fervor for change in the elections for the, for assembly or convention delegates, the old centrist coalitions, the center left coalition that had been the hegemonic, if you will, coalition in Chilean politics after the dictatorship and the center right, which they kind of like they're, they're, they're partners in crime. They just kind of alternated and they made deals together all the time. Right. Well, they got trounced. And instead, um, the, you know, who, who were the victors? The victors were uh, new forms of the left that were rising in Chile. One is the partisan left that was represented by an alliance, an alliance that in fact came together in order to compete in these convention elections of these new left parties um, that emerged out of these rising mass movements, and Boric himself comes out of the student movement of 2011-2012, right? So um, it, it's his um, coalition called the Frente Amplio, the broad front, in alliance with the old left, the Communist Party, right? Which had been in the wilderness for decades, but historically in Chile has been quite influential, especially among the working class. That alliance, in my view, is a watershed represents a watershed moment in Chilean politics where for the first time in over 50 years, there's a genuine left partisan alternative that's fighting for power. Right? They did very well in the convention elections. Another type of left, which you might call kind of a radical identitarian autonomist left, right, represented primarily in this uh, list of candidates called La Lista del Pueblo, the list of the people, right? They also came out of nowhere and did well. Now, a lot of the people who were elected on um, the Lista del Pueblo slate were people had been who had been on the streets and the front lines during the rebellion that had been involved in these new mass movements, etc. Um, those two forces emerged in the convention as the most influential ones. Right? They called the shots. They cut the deals they set the tone and the terms of the debate, right? Now, when people voted for the left, again, it was almost off the high that folks still felt, the optimism they still felt from the days of the rebellion, right? But they made some bad choices in my view. And I think facts ended up showing this to be the case particularly many candidates from the Lista del Pueblo ended up being extremely sectarian, extremely divisive, 
divisive unnecessarily, focused on very special particularistic issues, very moralizing. They turned off many other delegates in the convention, but in doing so, they also turned off many regular Chileans to the left into this general process of reform that was underway. I mention that because it set the tone in many ways for the presidential elections that happened in November of last year, right? Um, whereas the optimism for reform and this consensus I had mentioned indicated that the new left coalition would do pretty well, right? By the time the election comes about, people are already frustrated. And they're frustrated by and at the left, right? And so Boric actually comes in second place. He gets, I think, if I remember correctly, 23, 24% of the votes in the first round elections. And a new hard right authoritarian, right, way beyond the center right from before, right, candidate named Jose Antonio Cast, um, comes in first place. He barely edges them out, but he gets more votes than Boric. So when Boric is elected in the runoffs later, um, a few weeks later, right, the vote for him is not is no longer representative of this general consensus, pro-reform, optimistic consensus. It's really a vote to make sure that Gas doesn't come into power. So already when Boric enters office in March, March 11th of, of this year, he does so on fairly on a fairly uh, weak footing. Right. And with, you know, um, low approval ratings to begin with, and they dip immediately after the inauguration further. Right. Um, so, you know, we lived this, these moments of extremes almost from October and November 2019. Right. Of, um, as I said, this uh, optimism, energy, you know, on the street. And among regular, you know, in the in, in 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 the homes of regular, ordinary working Chilean families, right for change, to disaffection, discontent, suspicion, right um, at the beginning of, of this year, and much of that was driven by what happened in the constituent assembly. So let's let's get into the assembly, and and really, I mean, as a as an overall question, um, let's talk about the factors that went into Sunday's vote against the proposed new constitution. And that includes, I think, um, the battles that the, the very public battles that were fought during the assembly. Uh, it includes, you know, allegations of, you know, kind of fake news on the campaign trail and some underhanded, you know, campaigning on the part of opponents of the constitution. Uh, it includes, uh, I, I think, Probably to some extent, you can you know correct me if I'm wrong, but there's some sort of you know the idea of changing the constitution in the abstract versus the rubber kind of meeting the road and, yep. and having to say this constitution you know this is the one uh, you know there's some reluctance there and also I think turnout was higher for this election than it had been previously and so maybe there were a lot of kind of people who were silent in earlier stages of this process who came out I, these are there's a lot of factors at play here but but you know I wonder you know just let's let's talk about um, mm -hmm. what contributed to this outcome yeah yeah and, and all the factors you mentioned definitely contributed but it's important to try to um, order them in the most compelling way possible for, for our analysis um, I think we have to start off by just 
acknowledging. This was a massive defeat to the whole process of reform underway. And it was delivered by masses of ordinary working people. There's no way around it. Right? Six, I mean, you know, you go from 80% to 38% approval. Well, um, clearly the people were not on board. Um, now, thus far, there have kind of been two major explanations that are starting to emerge, right? And both hold the people responsible, right? One from a critical perspective, the other from a laudatory perspective, right? The critics of the way people voted largely are on the left, and many of them are the same kind of identitarian, radical, autonomist, right, that were behind many of these delegates in the convention. And their read of the outcome is that people are just conservative. People don't understand what's in their interests, right? And so it's their fault for voting this way because when given a chance to approve reforms that would benefit them, right, um, they allowed themselves to be manipulated or they're um, you know, by fake news, by propaganda, by WhatsApp messages, what have you, right? And they just don't get it. So we blame them. The other side, which is the really the, the, the voices of the old political class, which had been almost buried and are kind of now have been resuscitated by the outcome of these elections, right? They're saying, no, this is um, because of the people, but because the people actually do know what they want. We are a conservative society. We don't want such sudden, abrupt, radical change. And what do we need to do then? We need to go back to the centrist, progressive neoliberalism of the 90s and the aughts, right, in the early teens, right? Um, in my view, they're both wrong. They're, they're both absolutely wrong. And by the way, the former view, their solution to what happened is to go out there and moralize even further, convince people further that they're wrong and try to win them over through, you know, ideological and cultural battle, which will only be more alienated, <laughs> alienating if you ask me. In my view, what actually happened are, um, you know, is a result of a convergence of a couple of things. One is what happened in the convention and the product, the charter that they drafted um, ordinary working people voted against this uh, against the um against the draft to punish the convention to punish the delegates and to punish what they came up with it's a as i said as i are saying in chile now voto castigo a vote of punishment right um and why is that well because you have to go back to what happened during the rebellion, what motivated people to come out to the street? What fueled the rebellion? These basic grievances for core material, universal material rights and protections, guaranteed public pensions, quality free public education, um, the state to protect work, um, working class workers, employees' rights, right? when they um, enter a relationship with employers or when they bargain collectively with employers, you know, higher wages, all of these things. Well, those demands, those grievances 
it did make it into the Constitution. The Constitution does guarantee a number of basic social, um, uh, public goods and social and forms of social provision, but they got totally eclipsed. In fact, buried under um, the a much more prominent language and text about more particularistic rights, identity-based rights. If you look at the text, for instance, gender, gender rights and what, what they're calling gender perspective, right? That all these new reformed institutions must incorporate a gender perspective. Well, those mentions make it in the text, I think, 50 times or more. When talking about indigenous communities' rights and what is being termed plurinationality, right? Viewing Chile as a state composed of many nations, including indigenous nations that have special recognition and special rights and protections. That made it into the text 75 times. If you compare that to mentions of social security, right? It's totally overshadowed. Social security is, uh, you know, is mentioned 10 times. Labor rights, I think, nine times, right? So what people saw was not a new constitution that would actually defend, uh, promote these basic rights, right? They saw a morass of different issues and um, very lofty aims that, as I said, tend to, tended to bury these core demands, right? And that's what people punished at the polls. But as I said, it was a confluence of that with one more thing, which you mentioned in your question, which was the massive expansion in voter turnout, right? This was the first time in Chilean elections that um, voting was uh, mandatory and that registration was automatic, right? So you, you had, you know, these huge swaths of new electors who had been totally alienated from politics, who hadn't voted, uh, voters, I should hadn't voted in previous elections at all that were going to turn out. Many people hoped that this would favor approval. After all, these are less educated, lower income people who suffer those grievances, right, that propelled the, the um, rebellion in, in the first place, right? But instead, they voted overwhelmingly. They came out. It is, you could call it a silent majority that had been on the sidelines, that had been alienated from politics, and they came out and voted overwhelmingly against the Constitution. These are people who have no connections to these new mass movements. These are people who have been cut off from basic civic and partisan fabrics, right, that might help them, you know, guide them as they're making political decisions. They've been totally severed from political life in Chile, right? And so when they saw a text that, in their view, actually didn't prioritize their main aims, right, they mistrusted it then they became more susceptible to the propaganda, the fake news, right? And they were often swayed against it, but on what I consider to be very legitimate grounds. So I don't want to um, keep you, I think this has been great and, and uh, will be very helpful for people, but I, I do want to ask in sort of a closing question, um, you know, without, 
making you kind of pull out your crystal ball and predict what's going to happen. Uh, you know, what are, what are the alternatives here? I mean, it seems like Boric had very much kind of staked his presidency on uh, yeah. adopting a new constitution. Um, there is still this result from, from 2020 that people can point back to to say, uh, you know, admittedly with lower turnout. So, you know, maybe who knows what, what the actual national mood is, but they can point to this vote and say people want to change the constitution. Uh, but they're in limbo now. The Pinochet constitution remains in place. I- I'm not sure there's a process for, um, you know, everybody has, has, there's been a lot of, you know, commentary of, well, we'll just do this all over again. I'm not sure there's a mechanism to, to do that that's in place. So what, where do you see things going uh, from here in the, the next, you know, few months? Yeah, and that, that's those are the debates that are being held right now in Chile. Um, and it's unclear. One thing that is clear, again, is that as a result of this resounding blow, the right, the new right, that's constituted itself around caste, and the old center right, with sectors of the center left, right, have come out... Um, of the shadows and are, are asking for their pound of flesh. And what they're demanding is that whatever, however the process moves forward, because the, the constituent process will move forward in some manner or another, they will have substantial influ- influence on what that looks like. And they, will, in fact, will have veto power over um, how it proceeds. And politically, you know, they have every reason to make those demands. Because if Boric tries to move forward with a constituent process that in form and in content looks like the one that just occurred, they will easily point to the results, say, this is clearly not what the people want. You cannot go that route. We will block your every move. They have a majority in Congress, right? And so whatever happens, we'll have to somehow have the approval of Congress. And that's what where they will block him. So it's not clear right now uh, how it will move forward. But, you know, Boric and those forces for constitutional change um, will point to the opening plebiscite and say, you know, the 1980 constitution is still not a legitimate constitution. We need to change it. And they're right about that. Um, but it's unlikely that once again, there'll be a repeat of the same type of um, assembly elections um, where voters choose new representatives and delegates. The old political class will come in and shape the process as much as they can. And they have right now a lot of political capital with which to do that. This is also a blow for, for Boric's own program. I think, as you said, it was a mistake on his part to wait until the convention results to really push his reform um, proposals forward. His expectation, which is somewhat reasonable, was to say, look, I'm going to hold on a bit. I'm not going to go too far, push too too fast, because I'm, I'll wait for the Constitution to be approved. Then I'll have all these tailwinds, right, and this momentum to then start pushing the major reforms through. Well, now, you know, that's kind of dead in the water. You won't be able to do that. You'll have to moderate every proposal he puts forward. And so, as I said, it's a massive blow. It's a massive blow. And I think this time around, we have to accept defeat. Um, There's no silver lining here, unfortunately. 
in my view. There is one thing, however, that we can look to um, that might start to show us um, what steps we should take moving forward. You know, while it's true that working people and poor low-income people did reject the Constitution in greater proportion than expected. In fact, there is something, there's a figure floating around that in the poorest townships, um, the average vote was 75% for rejection. I don't know if you all have seen that. Um, it's somewhat misleading. After all, the poorest townships are spread um, throughout the provincial parts of the country and are very small. Their populations are, are, are not very significant. The bulk of Chile's working class resides in the capital region and what's called Región Metropolitana, uh, Santiago, and the, the large, um, dense townships surrounding it. And in the largest and poorest metropolitan region townships, about 50% came out and voted in favor wasn't nearly enough you know for this to be approved but it does show that there is a solid working class basis that is um still in favor of significant systemic reform the key is how to connect to those people how to recognize their demands and translate them into policy in such a way that they continue to support it and that the uh, working class layers supporting it uh, expand again back to what they were in 2019. And my view is that if the left insists on being what might be called a woke social justice warrior left that points to every injustice that every marginalized group in society is suffering and prioritizes those over the core material universalist reforms that are needed, this project won't move forward. But there is a basis there. And if we do things right, I think it'll grow. And this won't be the last shot that we have. So uh, that's an uncharacteristically upbeat note for us to end on, actually. But uh, uh, yeah, we usually end that. on, there's no hope. But yeah, you know, <laughs> keep on, keep on, keeping on. <laughs> no, I thought um, so too. But again, if you look at the numbers, they, they have to I mean, you know, they tell us all of the pessimistic things we've heard, no doubt. Right. But they tell us some things to, to build on, and they're indicative of things to build on. And we just can't squander <laughs> these opportunities in, any further. Yeah, we'll try. Let's try to avoid that mutual ruin uh, Marx so famously talks about. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. On that note, then, uh, Rene Rojas, Binghamton, Sunny Binghamton, uh, Jacobin, Catalyst, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and helping us to understand Sunday's outcome. Uh, thanks for the invitation. It was a pleasure.